stories, scripts, and conversations with creators. This is the Brave Maker Podcast. All right. Well, hey, welcome to the online Brave Maker Film Fest experience. This is our ninth week of doing this. It's pretty wild to think. And I know for many of you, sheltering in place at home, or maybe you're just on your phone because maybe your county or wherever you live, things have lifted a little bit. You are able to get out and about. I don't know what is what it is like for you, but I'm hoping that these experiences and these conversations provide you some sort of refuge and hope and inspiration to move forward and to take action with our world. What we do, how we think, how we interact with others, how we treat others really has an impact not only on us, but on making this place that we call home uh, better. So before we get into our conversation today, I want to say thank you to our sponsors. Now, uh, as you heard in the video, that video was our very first event in 2018. December 2018 really is when we had our official launch. We started April 2018 just with the idea, but our public coming out party, if you will, was December 2018 when our nonprofit was uh, first in Redwood City where we're headquartered and we had a big live event and that really snowballed. We thought we were just going to do one film festival a year and it really turned into a monthly screening experience and now because of COVID-19 we are online weekly here reaching all across the world with your help. But we can't do it without our partners so I need to say thank you to Premia, Premia Capital, who has been with us uh, since early 2020, supporting us uh, financially. They are a leading commercial real estate firm in downtown Redwood City. So thank you to Premia for sponsoring us. If you are a generous person, individual, or company, and you want to support us as a nonprofit, just give me a, an email. We are uh, Everything is tax deductible. And right now, we have a matching program. So all of our donations and grants that come in through the end of May will be matched by the Jacques M. Littlefield Foundation, which is one of our sponsors. Can't thank them enough. I'm going to invite my co-host, Christina Jackson, in today. Hi, Christina. Hey, Tony. What's going on, everybody? So Christina has been with us for uh, four or five different live broadcasts here. She is a Brave Maker ambassador. You'll see her all over social media oh, yeah. uh, doing great, great things. She is a social justice advocate. Uh, helping all different people with abilities as Miss Wheelchair California 2018. She's an amazing force for the LGBTQ plus community. And we're just really grateful that she's on the team leading with her voice. So anything you want to share before we get and dive into our conversation today? Oh my goodness, Tony. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) Just that this has been such an amazing bonus of moving the film festival virtually. I have this opportunity. So thank you for inviting me and it's great. Can't wait to talk to today's filmmaker. You got it. So don't forget that we are always about social media. So if you're watching this live right now, share it. Share it on your timeline. If you're watching on the replay, tag somebody who might be interested. Uh, Follow my co-host on Instagram, Christina Ray Jackson. And uh, with no further ado, let's get into today's discussion. So if you are on our email list, you will know every Monday we send out free links. These are films that filmmakers are offering to us for free so that we can watch them and then discuss them. So bravemaker.com slash buzz is how you sign up on our subscriber list. And right now everything has been free, thankfully, due to the generosity of these filmmakers. Now artists are never ones to, um, at least at 
most of them, the independent ones, they're not living high on the hog here. They're, they're uh, making their art because it's their passion. They want to tell these stories. So we are here to support them. What do they get from saying yes to Brave Maker? They get conversations like this and then your support. So we want you to be following them, sharing their work, because these filmmakers, like our featured guest today, Spencer Fulmar, uh, rely on it. So welcome to the broadcast, the writer and the director of our feature film today, Shooting Heroin. Spencer! Hey! <laughs> so I'm at the airport. Oh, sorry. <laughs> we got it together today. I love it. Bring yeah, it. got it super together. This is my first time flying uh, post... <laughs> COVID-19 and I'm supposed to wear a face mask. So I'm going to put this on in a second, but thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to have a in-depth conversation about the opioid epidemic still ravaging America. Right on. Well, let's dig in to Christina. Why don't you start us off uh, with the questions? Yeah, I thought this was an incredible short film, something really, really responsible. Feature film, feature film. Feature film. Thank you, Tony. <laughs> and Spencer, like right now to, you know, have a film like this coming out, it's so important because I think we're all feeling weighed down with the pandemic, but we need to realize there are some people dealing with addiction on top of what's going on. And your film, not only your feature film, not only addresses the issue in Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. Uh, I'm from Phoenixville, which is like 30 minutes east of Philly. Yeah. Um, so it was it was wild, like seeing all the landscaping and everything felt very familiar. And I like what you said about, you know, you and I are both now in California, but we're from small towns in Pennsylvania, which will yeah. always be home. So Absolutely. It's very to see, you know, what's going on, what's ravaging our country and, and states like Pennsylvania. And even right here in California, you know, we're struggling with it. So it's great that you brought up this topic and we're talking about it. And I'm really hoping today's conversation is really helpful to a lot of people who are sheltering in place with people who are battling addiction. Thank you so much, Christina. I really appreciate it. Go Pennsylvania. <laughs> yeah, go Pennsylvania. <laughs> so why don't you give the backstory, Spencer? Tell us about why Shooting Heroin needed to be a, your, your fourth feature film. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Um, so Shooting Heroin uh, came about from life events uh, that I personally experienced. Um, I grew up in central Pennsylvania, very rural near um, where I'm at right now, actually, is in Pennsylvania at State College. And uh, I was visiting home for my uh, high school reunion. I was working with some of my classmates and connecting, catching up with high school classmates. And we were planning our high school reunion together. And, you know, as things happen, whenever you move across the country, you lose touch with a lot of people and you lose touch with what's happening back home. And whenever I spent this time back home, planning our high school reunion at around Christmas time, um, I realized how many of our classmates from our class and surrounding grades were no longer here today because of the opioid epidemic, because they had overdosed and they had died and were no longer here. I was actually in the middle of making another film in Las Vegas, Nevada. We'd already location scouted and you know, started making offers to talent. Um, but I switched gears and wrote this script actually in one night uh, inspired by true events, a lot of fiction, though it is a fiction story, but I felt like this, this topic needed a feature film. It needed more exposure in that this is such a pressing need right now in America that I felt convicted to tell this story first and make this film now. And that's how Shooting Heroin came about in April of 2018. 
Just a cool side note. I met Spencer in Sundance. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it was 2019 January. I think yeah. correct, right? Yeah. Right. So this is when you were in in post production, I believe, of the yep. film, uh, which is really cool. This industry is so much about relationships, and mm-hmm. I you know just highly recommend. We always speak to the filmmakers. As, uh, who are part of our audience that your journey of making your films and celebrating your films always comes down to the people you link arms with. And so, it's so uh, true. Spencer and I got to hang out in a, a, one of those free Sundance lounges, sip some whiskey and just <laughs> chatted about our journey as filmmakers and storytellers. And I remember hearing about this. And then when it came out, I said, Hey, you should submit it to our festival. And as a person uh, who has had many people, lose family members and loved ones to the opioid epidemic i thought we needed to show this film to have this conversation and you don't shy away from the ugly side of you know just not just life but small towns Um, and the grittiness it's a rated r film so we always tell people who are part of the brave maker audiences that a lot of independent films don't get rated, but most of them could be, you know, in the higher PG-13 rated R because of the content in there. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about not shying away from that darkness and even the, the title, Shooting Heroin, is pretty provocative. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah, so obviously the opioid epidemic is a very heavy, weighty matter. Um, my last films had all been PG-13. This was my first R-rated movie. But, you know, the world in which we live in is far more R-rated than anything I could ever depict in a film. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, the you know, drug culture and just the way that people talk. I knew that I could make this film PG-13, but I felt like it would be less authentic and less realistic. And that it wouldn't do justice to the people who have lived through this, have, have been part of drug culture, have... Uh, been around the opioid epidemic or their lives have been devastated. Um, and so I felt like in order to do this film justice, I needed to depict the reality as real as possible. And even the title too, like the entire point of making this film is to bring exposure and to have conversations about the opioid epidemic that has been ongoing for so long. And, and, um, and so even just the title, even though it's very much in your face, it almost requires people to have a conversation just from saying shooting heroin. Like I watched shooting heroin last night. You have to clarify what that means. Yeah. And then you have to have a conversation. That's very smart. Yeah. That's incredible. That, that title on its own does pull you in and it kind of makes you sit up and say, Hey, what is this about? And Spencer, I was really curious how many people involved in the film, the actors, especially, had direct impact or direct connection with the epidemic that's going on right now? Yeah, everyone involved had a story of loss or knew someone um, directly related to the opioid epidemic. And unfortunately, that's just the situation in America. They say that it's one degree of separation to knowing someone whose life has been impacted or devastated by the opioid epidemic. So, um, but all the actors, they were committed to the cause and they... Mm -hmm. And they made themselves available for this film because they believed in bringing exposure to this topic. You could feel that. I felt that watching the film that the actors and some of them I recognized from other work, but it felt so authentic and so genuine. Like they were telling their story, you know, it wasn't something that they were transforming and portraying that that was their story. So I thought that was really well done. 
Yeah, thank you, Christina. I was really fortunate with our actors. I mean, you know, from Sherilyn Fenn and Gary Pastor and Alan Powell and Lawrence Hilton Jacobs, we had a great cast. Um, and all the cast and crew had that unified mission of doing justice to this topic. Because, you know, there's been films on the opioid epidemic, but there's not that many that deal directly with the epidemic as it exists today in America, and especially, especially not in rural America. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we felt kind of the weightiness of that task. Well, thanks for, I love, I believe that wholeheartedly stories can change the world. That's our motto. Brave stories change the world. And we are truly, we are the story. We're living the story. So thanks for using film to provoke those conversations. I love that the, the title was intentional. I love that everything about it is for you to start a conversation. And we're going to get in a conversation with some other professionals in the field here. We're going to take one quick question because we got somebody who wants to talk about the practicalness of casting. And this is Robertino, who also happens to be our assistant director. So I love when he's watching live. Uh, he, he programs our film festivals. He's great film, brave story, great cast. Where did you find this talented cast? <laughs> Thank you, Robertino. Um, I appreciate that. We did have an incredible cast. Um, as casting a film goes, you know, it just kind of comes together. Some casting happened literally 72 hours before filming. Our sheriff, uh, Gary Pastor, came in. We'd originally had another actor in that spot, and then he had to pull out for pickup shots on another film. Um, my lead actor, Alan Powell, was connected to me through my um, lawyer, Sam Curphy. Um, we both had the same lawyer and he said, he, he was helping me with some of the legal development of our LLC. And he said, you should talk to Alan and Alan and I really hit it off. I had a casting director, Jennifer Ricciozzi. She was wonderful. She connected me with a lot of our leading ladies and leading men. And then I also worked with a manager, Timothy Beal, who, um, connected me with some additional actors that really rounded out this, this ensemble cast. This was unique for me. Most of my films is like one leading man, one leading woman, and this film had so many leads and such a big ensemble yeah. cast. And that was a unique uh, opportunity. I love, well, Alan Powell was fantastic. Like yeah. so, so engaged. I so believed him in his journey. Yeah. I, I, I definitely fanboyed out a little bit with uh, Sherilyn Penn in there. <laughs> I'm, I'm a huge Twin Peaks, you know, the original Same. series. So ooh, that was so good. Uh, cool. We could talk more and more about that. I love that kind of stuff. Uh, let's talk, keep talking about the content of the story. We have two really special guests and I got to say thank you to my friends on their internet, uh, Jen and Corey, who helped in the, in the, in the clutch. I was supposed to have another person who was going to speak from the angle of, um, the recovery side and they were not able to make it last minute. And I just put out, uh, this is the power. This is when social media works at its best. I said, Hey, anybody short notice want to help out? And then I got recommendations. We got not one, but two amazing people who are going to share today their story and their interactions. I've got Amy Noel, who is a, a licensed social worker. And I've got Timothy McMahon King, who is a, both of these people are living stories. They are the brave stories of, of dealing with the wake of addiction now sober and helping others and timothy is the author of a, of a book called addicted nation so timothy why don't we start with you and just have you talk a little bit about your journey and your book addicted nation thanks so much for having me and yeah it, it is so good to have projects like this that highlight the ongoing ravages that this overdose crisis is having for our country and my background was 10 years ago. I had a severe medical issue. I spent two months in the hospital. The doctors put me on levels of pain medicine normally reserved for those who are about to die because they thought I was about to die. 
But after I recovered, I moved home and I was sent home with a lot of prescription drugs and I did not realize I was facing a new medical complication and that was an opioid addiction. For years, I didn't tell my story because I wasn't sure how it connected, but um, I'm so glad I did because one of the amazing things that I found out when I first started reaching the opioid, researching the opioid crisis is it's not just about opioids. We've actually had a drug overdose crisis in this country since 1979. Every nine years since 1979, drug overdoses in the United States have doubled. And one of the first drug crises we had was the crack epidemic in the 1980s. And we treated it as a moral failure. We went after the people who were struggling with addiction and we created mass incarceration of mostly black and brown people. So today I'm so grateful for all the attention that we're getting to this crisis, but we need to remember that the reason why we're here is because we failed in the past because of racist criminal justice policies that treated this as an individual failure instead of looking at the societal economic issues that we're dealing with today. Thank you for that. So, in fellow guests, you can feel free to you know, toss out questions. But you, so yeah, you're saying your book isn't really about going to stop the the suppliers uh, and attack that, which I think Spencer's film does that for me a little bit by kind of reminding us that our revenge, a desire to go and you know take out, if you will, the the war on drugs on on people, is a look at why is there a supply a demand there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. When we look at addiction, uh, one of the best things that I heard is that most people don't have drug problems. They have drug solutions. And there is something in their life that that drug, that substance, that behavior is temporarily meeting. And so for me, it was the fact that I had been in severe physical pain, but also had been experiencing the trauma of being in the hospital and having a doctor say, we're not sure if you're going to live or die. And so every time I was taking my, I was on Dilaudid and fentanyl, every time I was taking a pill of Dilaudid, I was trying to treat the physical pain, but also the hardship of that emotional experience. And we've seen so many people, even if their addiction doesn't start because a doctor prescribed them medication, it started and it was rooted in some sort of pain. And people try to so often self-medicate with whatever substance it is. And so the more we punish, the more pain we inflict, often the worse we're making the situation that feeds that addiction. And that's why it's so important to switch from this model of thinking about punishment and incarceration to what does it look like to create a culture that lifts up people and creates uh, an opportunity for recovery for all. If you're interested in connecting with Tim, his website is here and he also does speaking and he's got a free download guide as well. Uh, some things he's participated in, go to McMahonKing.com. Uh, if my name is Tony Gapistone, if you're just joining us, I'm the executive director of the Brave Maker Film Fest. I want to bring in uh, Amy Noel, who, who does some work here uh, as a licensed uh, counselor, social worker. Uh, Amy, can you tell us about your, your work and what you do and your story, how this connects? Yes, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'm so glad to be a part of this project. And I have been a social worker since 1996, working in the human service field. And 
I have the family disease of addiction. My dad is in recovery and my husband's in recovery. I'm in recovery. And so it's really pretty consuming. And my husband is an addiction counselor and he was, before I got into the addiction field, I was in the recovery rooms and so fortunate living in a big city. I live in LA and it's one of the biggest uh, recovery communities here. And so we're fortunate to have all that support. Um, and I actually was a little bit hesitant to get into addiction treatment because of the high death rate. And um, it really takes a toll on the workers but it's such a vulnerable population. It's such a marginalized population. And I'm a part of that population. And shedding light on it, being willing to delve in and talk openly about it. So I'm a huge advocate of people talking really openly about what's going on with them, with their mental health, with their struggles with addiction because we see so many brave stories coming out and we see people who are complicated and we're all complicated creatures, but very deep, very artistic, very sensitive, very smart and very successful people have all of these struggles. And so some of the shame that goes into um, struggling with addiction issues and some of the desire to kind of keep it secret. And then there's the whole recovery support group, which is all anonymous. So there's this idea that we want to be able to maintain anonymity. Um, but really being willing to shed a light on the dark things that are going on is so important and so helpful in helping the other people that are struggling and they're in the dark spot. So, I mean, I decided to delve into it despite the high death rate, despite, despite the toll that it takes, the, the secondary trauma that's associated with working in addiction treatment, because it's, it's a frontline job. We got to attack it. We got to deal with it. We got to expose it. We got to have people that are willing to talk about openly their own experiences and people that are willing to make films about it. And so I'm just so glad to be a part of this. Thanks so much. Thanks, Amy. Yeah. I was putting up there uh, the um, findtreatment.gov. Find this is a number that I would encourage you to put in your own phone. I love that when we can have resources like this. So if you or a loved one uh, finds themselves in this addiction space, please just Stick this in your phone right now uh, as, a, as a way to be able to share it or to access it when you find yourself in a situation. I'll keep that up there for, for a minute here. Christina, did you have a question? We, have, we also have Corey saying thank you, Amy. Go ahead, Christina. Yeah, thank you, Amy, so much. And Amy, this question is for you. So say that some of us are home. We're sheltering in place with people who are struggling with addiction. What's the best way we can support them and have conversations with them and coexist in a way that's going to be the most harmonious for everyone. Because like you mentioned, there are secondary issues for their caretakers or the people who are on the outside of the addiction trying to support the person. So what's the best way uh, to interact with people during shelter in place who may be struggling? 
that's a great question. I actually, um, I've been home with my son during the COVID um, outbreak, um, but I've done some teletherapy with some people that are in treatment with a local treatment center, Restore Health and Wellness. And um, one of the clients that I wor- was working with is actually went into treatment. And just to let everyone know, treatment centers are open. They are one of those services that needs to keep going despite what's going on. These are frontline workers working there. Um, it's actually a good time to go into treatment right now for a lot of people. Your job is protected through family leave, FMLA. Um, you know, there's not as much work anyway, and people are home, and people are really struggling at home. You know, my husband and I were just talking about this the other day. If we were in our active addiction right now, it would be off to the races, right? It's like if you're, if you have a structured routine that you're a part of, and now that has been completely taken away, and you're at home, unstructured time, or working from home with the capacity to engage in your addiction, it's very hard for it not to accelerate really rapidly during this time. So I encourage people to address it directly. For those with um, that are living with people with addiction issues, I think that, um, you know, you, you, can't, you can't force anyone to do anything, but I think uh, bringing up some of the issues, um, probably talking to a professional about exactly how to address it would be a good idea. There are people that are available, therapists that specialize in addiction treatment, interventionists, to kind of talk to, to the specifics of your situation and how best to address it. Um, but there, if there's some limit setting that can be engaged in some pointing out some discrepancies about some of the ways someone says they're going to go about things or because when you're in your active addiction, you believe at one point that like, okay, I'm going to stop and this is how it's going to go. And then because it's a brain disease, this other part takes over and that's just, you break promises. Like you can't keep a promise to yourself or others because there's this part of the brain that is driving towards addiction and you're not able to do it. So pointing out those discrepancies that are going on, maybe encouraging with loving kindness and setting up boundaries if, the, if that's what needs to happen. Yeah, if you're working with someone that's in their active addiction and has those resistances and defenses up, in a lot of ways, like you're not even talking to that real person. There's a part of them that's the addict part that's driving, and there's no talking to that. There's no rationalizing. There's no having a conversation where you have room. So that would be either limit setting or trying to find some openings with loving kindness and compassion and understanding that like, this is just not how we as a family were hoping this was going to go and pointing out those discrepancies that are going on. As you're talking, I'm going to um, 
quickly bring up one of our partners, the Peninsula Conflict Resolution Center um, is a great resource. They offer free mediation. If you find yourself in a challenging situation, the Peninsula Conflict Resolution Center can help mediate between you and an, a, a, an individual, a loved one, a part of a third party, whether it be an organization or not. They are available. You can go to their website, the pcrc.org, for more information. I'm going to also talk about them later in the broadcast. But thank you, Amy, for that. Timothy, yes. do you want to respond and share anything? about how you might encourage someone who's finding themselves in a space with a loved one or themselves uh, in addiction. And thank you, Spencer, for inspiring this conversation with your friend. Yeah. One thing that Amy said that's so important is the fact that everything that we're seeing from being more isolated to not having structure uh, helps feed an addiction. And this is going to be true not just for people who have an existing, like, more substantial addiction. If you're a regular drinker and it hasn't been a significant problem for you in your life, but you've realized that you're drinking a little bit more and a little bit more during this time, and maybe your sleep isn't as good. Maybe you've been waking up feeling anxiety. I would just speak to anyone out there right now who's noticing that, but doesn't have that long history there. Take some time. And as Amy said, in a compassionate way, to reflect on that because addiction is a progressive um, condition, right? So it can go from a less severe to a extreme condition. And so for while some people have that first drink and they never stop, there's a lot of other people out there who all it is is they have a couple more drinks to eat every year over the course of their life. And that is what leads to really problematic areas and maybe a full-blown alcoholism. So for anyone who's listening that does consume alcohol regularly or anything else, take that time to check in with yourself right now and be compassionate with those around you because this is something that we're all struggling with in the midst of this pandemic. Awesome. Thank you, Timothy. Timothy has a free resource here uh, about addiction. If you want to go to his McMahonKing.com uh, website, you can get that. It's on his on his homepage for free. You can download the guide. Uh, again, if you're just finding us and you have any questions about our discussion, you can pop them into the comments. We're happy to slide them in. We have about 10 more minutes. We're going to be here on, on, our, on our discussion. Uh, I find myself on another side of the epidemic here is I have been with many people who have lost their loved ones to overdoses and walking with the grief and the guilt that comes with that when you, obviously we have no control, as Amy said, to how people respond, you know, to these challenges that they're facing inside, um, which I think is another whole another part of the conversation. Uh, but if you find yourself today thinking uh, you're in grief in some way in that stage, whether it's the denial, the acceptance, the anger, uh, my hope is resource-wise that you would be able to find some groups for, for therapy, for your own recovery and healing, because it is a grueling path. I don't know if anybody has any thoughts on this, but you know the film elevates this conversation, Spencer. You have um, we, we, we tend to do spoilers here because we assume you've watched the movie because we have made it available. If you have not watched the movie, you have a little bit more time. Don't forget, you can go to our, our website. If you have not signed up, it'll be available for one more week to watch uh, Shooting Heroin. 
But uh, Spencer, you in the film deal with this. You deal with the grief of a family and a town that has lost many people to overdoses. Do you want to comment about that at all? Yeah, that was sort of, I mean, that was a starting place. Whenever I started talking to people from back home who had lost loved ones from addiction, and especially uh, parents who had lost their son or daughter and felt like they had been blindsided, not knowing that their child was addicted. Um, And then they just, they don't know what to do with all these feelings of uh, despair and rage and grief and pain. And unfortunately, those negative feelings usually uh, manifest themselves in more negative ways. And, you know, the idea is um, so often in America, you know, it's like this us versus them mentality. You know, the if we just catch the bad guys or if we, you know, prison or arrest or whatever it is, some kind of us versus them mentality that we can make this situation better. But unfortunately, as you see in the film, which is a moral tale, that there is no us versus them. It's just everyone. We're all on the same side. And the only thing that's going to make this epidemic better is empathy and love and understanding and grace especially to those who so need that love and care in our life, those who are dealing with addictive uh, addiction right now actively. And so that's, that's the tough situation that the characters in this fictionalized story go through is that they start with this idea of us versus them. And then they go to a place um, of grace because they realize that the people that they thought were the enemy, they really have to look at themselves in the mirror if they want to make any actual change. Christina, go ahead. Yeah, I thought that was absolutely spectacular how you highlighted that. You have the, you know, some of the leading characters, Hazel and Eddie and Adam, you know, and they've all suffered tremendous loss because of the epidemic. And they kind of take, they don't take justice into their own hands, but they want to take action. What were you hoping to highlight? Like, what message do you want to drive home to the viewers about the action? that Adam, Eddie, and Hazel took and the repercussions of that? Was it meant to be a blueprint or was it meant more to be a a cautionary tale? Uh, Meant more to be a cautionary tale because they do a lot of actions and they're practical actions. There's actions that you've seen happen in different towns and different strategies that the government has used uh, across the last couple decades. And unfortunately, um, there's a couple things I learned whenever I was doing my research and development on the opioid epidemic. The first thing I learned was you know, from talking to substance abuse counselors and to judges and uh, police officers, first responders, addicts, and drug dealers that, you know, the the thing that has made this epidemic um, ravage, especially the heartland of America, is an overwhelming feeling of despair that so many young people especially have lost, um, you know, a a sense of hope uh, for the future, a sense of hope for opportunity that things can get better. And that, this is a very multifaceted um, epidemic. You know, there's big pharma, uh, there's the disease of addiction, there's shame, um, there's, there's lack of opportunity, despair. There's so many things that have made this epidemic have that high death count per day of 115 plus. Um, and it's not going to be a single solution. You know, the number one thing I can say as a solution at the end of the film is that all the things that Edward and Adam and Sherilyn, Hazel, all of them try to do, none of them actually make this situation better. They can in their each own way, but the number one thing that everyone has to do is first care about your neighbor. If you don't care about your neighbor, you're never actually going to treat it 
honestly and make real progress, you're actually probably going to make things worse, which is what has happened in America. We've made it almost as bad as possible. Well, I just say thank you so much for making this film. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we have a couple more minutes. It's kind of quiet on the comments. I know this is a very hard discussion to have. Uh, it's very delicate, and it bring, think, definitely brings up a lot of pain. Um, part of my background is not, it's not just as a filmmaker, but as someone who has officiated many memorials on behalf of those who have lost their loved ones and then engaged in uh, counseling and support for those who are still grieving. Uh, this issue, this story is really uh, heavy on my heart. So thank you for that on behalf of those friends and family that I know are in these difficult places. Uh, this film is definitely could definitely be a hard watch. Um, but if you are in a place where you could receive it, especially now during our pandemic, I encourage you to watch it. It's still available for our Brave Maker subscribers and have these conversations. Be willing to engage. Uh, if you want to support Spencer and not just watch it for free, uh, it's available on his website, heroinfilm.com. And please uh, support these amazing people who are doing their work. Uh, Spencer, you can find his Instagram at Spencer Fulmar. You can find Timothy and his work here. His Instagram is Timothy McMahon King. His, tw his Twitter is TM King. And uh, Amy suggested going to findtreatment.gov if you find yourself in a place where you don't know how to respond. And please put this phone number in your cell phone. Maybe you could resource it to a neighbor, to someone who you never knew how to help them before. All of a sudden, you have something just at the, the click of a, a button on your phone. I really appreciate all of you for your time today. Any final words anybody wants to say before we... Yeah. Can I ask Spencer, the high school kids, were those actual high, uh, high school students or were those actors? Oh, they were actual high school students. We did an open casting call, and that was the high school that I went to that's featured in the movie. <laughs> that's amazing. That's really yeah. awesome. By doing that, by bringing them into the story, that helps empower, empower that area. Yeah. You know, I thought that's fantastic. I was thinking, I was like, I wonder if those are actual kids from Pennsylvania. Like, that would be amazing. Yeah, we had so much support from the area. I mean, like all the businesses and the high school, I mean, they all gave up their businesses and their time and for free for the cause. Yeah. So it was a, it was a really special experience and I'm glad my hometown came together to make yeah. an impact. I Go think filmmaking. It, it is a blueprint yeah. for small towns across our country, you know, to come together. And, yeah. Uh, what Amy and Spencer said, be loving, compassionate and kind. Last One thing. thing we'll... Go ahead. I was reading this real quick. Uh, then you can respond Tim. Uh, Corey says, biggest thing I learned by losing my cousin to overdose is to show unconditional love to that person or to the people who are hurting. Thank you, Corey. Go ahead, Timothy. Yeah. One thing I'd love to share is just a word of hope of sometimes you hear those words of like, be compassionate, be kind. And you know, that's a good thing, but does it make a difference? And there was one study that was done, two researchers, Leek and King, and they went around to three different alcohol recovery centers and they studied every person who was being treated there. And then they made a list and gave it to the counselors and the staff and said, these are the people who are most likely to recover. And so they came back and they checked in once every few months, came back and a few years later, they dove into the data. And sure enough, every single person on their list was more likely to get sober and stay sober, more likely to get a job and keep that job. And if they relapsed, it was shorter and less severe. 
So everyone wanted to know what had they figured out that so accurately allowed to them to predict who would enter into recovery. And the big reveal was it was nothing. They had randomly assigned each person to that list. So the only thing that changed was the expectations of the staff and the counselors. There's a great author, Walter Brueggemann, who talks about the prophetic imagination and that before we can even think about the practical steps, we need to be able to imagine a different world. We need to be able to imagine a world where 115 deaths a day is not normal, where we grind to a halt as a country and say, what needs to change to make this better? Just like we've seen all these people dying from coronavirus, we see those, those kind of numbers every year from drug overdose deaths. We can shift the system. We can change these causal factors. It's a matter of will and it's a matter of imagination of seeing that it's possible. That's great. That is a fantastic word for us. Thank you, Tim. Uh, our hope as Brave Maker is that we would see brave stories changing the world. We, our mission is to elevate the, uh, the just stories, the diverse stories, the inclusive stories that help us turn our eyes to, to the other. We get to, the power is in our hands. We get to make a change in this world. So thank you to all my guests today for joining uh, with, with us. Please go and follow them. If you are, again, if you're watching live or you're watching on the replay, can you tag uh, friends, people, people who would benefit from this link? Uh, if you are a generous, uh, in a place where you could give generously, can I invite you that you would consider donating? All the donations that come to Brave Maker through the month of May will be matched 100% by our grantor, the Jacques M. L., the Jacques M. Littlefield Foundation. You can go to bravemaker.org uh, today and do your donations, or you can pick up your phone and text the word Brave Maker to 44321. That's the word Brave Maker to 44321, and everything will be matched. We depend on your generosity to elevate these great stories and these filmmakers. And if you want to uh, get some merchandise, you can go to our, our website as well. All of our merchandise is now online, bravemaker.com slash merch. All right. So uh, don't, don't forget, our, our partner, the Peninsula Conflict Resolution Center, is offering free webinars about how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting different people of color in the Bay Area. You can go to PCRC.org for more information about that. Again, thank you to my guests. Thank you for being here. Kudos to you. Please share this and support their great work. Brave stories change the world. You are the story. Bye, everybody. Our work is funded by generous patrons like you. Support the podcast with a tax-deductible donation at bravemaker.com. Brave stories change the world. Thanks for listening to the Brave Maker podcast. The Subscribe, give us a rating, and share with a friend. Brave stories change the world. You are the story.